Hi, I'm Ewan Blakey, Senior Pastor of Oasis Church. I hope this message gives you hope and helps you take your next step on your Christian journey. We'd love to invite you to come and see us in person at 10 a.m. on Sundays or join us live every Sunday on YouTube. For more info, visit our website, oasischurchperth.com. Hey, if you're joining us online, welcome this morning. We're so glad that you're here virtually. You're in the room with us. Um, so here's my, my great panel this morning. This is, um, I'm Christy, by the way, if you've never met me, senior pastor here along with Ewan. And this is Jairus, Pastor Hello. Jairus and Pastor Ben. These guys are both pastors here at Oasis. Um, Jai, what do you do here at Oasis? Uh, I currently run a connect group for people, boys under... Men. Men, 24 to 17. I'm just running it through my head. So if you're in that age bracket, come down. We run on a Thursday night. Yes, very, very good. Um, and you're also on the young adults team. You're leading the worship nights. and Yes, being a team, do the worship nights. Awesome time for you to connect with God. Awesome space. Come down for that. Once okay, a month. brilliant. And uh, Pastor Ben down here, tell us about what you're up to this year. Nothing much, you know, just <laughs> hanging out. <laughs> No, uh, together with my wife, uh, we are looking at planting, or well, we're not looking at, we are planting in a campus. <laughs> yeah, you are. Campus. Yes. So just a quick plug, if you're feeling the call to, you know, do something new this year, come and have a yarn with us. We'd love to have you on the team. Um, yeah, I'm going to, yeah. We haven't actually that. announced the location yet because we were still praying about it and thinking it through. Do you want to announce the location right now? Yeah, for sure. Can you give us a drum roll? Give us a platform drum roll. We're looking at launching in Baldivas. Come on. Yes. We love that community. We see that it's thriving and growing, and um, everywhere needs Jesus. But yeah, we feel a call to that area. Um, so yeah, excited about that. So, Baldivas Oasis. It's going to be cool. Come on. Come on. Here we go. Very exciting. Okay, so our topic for today is the end times the book of Revelation and the end times. It's a big topic, right? And when we say end times, I'm sure you've got some ideas, some preconceived ideas, some thoughts about what the end times might look like, might mean to you. So we're going to explore it today. Straight up, I want to tell you that none of us are end times experts. Nope. But we are passionate about the subject and we are well researched on the subject. So we're going to bring to you today what we know. You might leave with more questions and that's kind of our hope and prayer for you today. That this would um, pique your curiosity and your interest and that you would grab your Bible and that you would go home and, and have a good read for yourself. Does that sound good? We want to empower your learning today. So I want to introduce the conversation and then we're going to hear from the guys here as well. But for thousands of years, people have been talking about the end times, the final judgment and perhaps even the annihilation of the earth. Many people, many times, have predicted when it will happen. In fact, there are around 200 documented predictions from all kinds of people on when the earth will end. And the predictions start in about 66 AD. We've lived through that one. And every, in every century since, there's been a year listed as the final year, predicted by someone. Nostradamus, um, prophets, poets, uh, sages. So 
We're still going strong in 2023, despite the 200 predictions. Here's a great stat. In the UK in 2015, 23% of the general population believed the apocalypse was likely to occur in their lifetime. That's a pretty high statistic, isn't it? Um, and th I think people have believed that ever since Jesus came and died and was resurrected. One thing we do know is that Jesus will return. It's in the Bible. We believe in that. Um, and it talks about in Revelation that when Jesus does return, he will return as a conquering king with all the angels and he will establish his kingdom on earth and Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. That's in Revelation 19. And that is good news for God's people. Can I hear an amen this morning? All right. Now, before we move on, I want to frame up the conversation for you just a little bit more. Um, and the first point I want to make is that there's a warning for us as we look into the end times. And the warning is this, that we can get preoccupied and slightly obsessed with end times and Jesus' return too much. And I want to say that that can impact how we live in the present. If we're focused too much on his return, it impacts us now. For example, if we started to believe that Jesus was coming in our lifetime, we were getting preoccupied with it and obsessed about it, then it would change the way we live now. Like, for example, we might stop caring about the environment because we're like, well, God's coming back, Jesus is coming back, and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, so why bother looking after our environment? Why bother addressing the needs of humanity, like poverty, uh, because Jesus is coming back soon? So Jesus had some words on this in Matthew 6. He said, don't worry about tomorrow because today has enough troubles of its own and they're wise words as we frame up this conversation because we're called to stay present. So while we're talking about future things, the importance is in the present. And the other thing I want to say before we take off is that the lens that we look through as we discuss this topic, is that of this. We, we serve a loving Father. He's a loving God. He's not a judging, mean, angry God. He is a loving Father who created a heaven and an earth for people, for his pleasure. That's the lens that we look at the end times through, the lens of a loving Father. In the beginning, in Genesis God wanted to dwell with people on earth forever. That was why we were created for God, for his good pleasure at the very beginning. And at the very end in the book of Revelation, it's just the same. God created a people for his pleasure and he wants to live with us. That doesn't change. Somewhere in the middle, there's this great story of redemption where Jesus comes and saves us because of sin. But the beginning and the end are the same because it was always God's plan and always God's purpose that he would be a loving father who would dwell with his people because we are great pleasure to him. So that's our lens. Can we adjust our lens right now? that we don't serve an angry God. We don't need to be afraid. Um, so this is our lens. This is our foundation as we look into eschatology. That's a big word. Eschatology, it just means the study of the end times. Do you want to have God saying it? Eschatology. Eschatology. 
There you go. You've all said a big word today. Eschatology. So one of the main books of the Bible that addresses Jesus' return and the end of the age is the book of Revelation. It's not Revelations. It's the book of Revelation. There's one revelation. His name's Jesus. So there are a number of texts within the Old Testament and the New Testament that point to Jesus' return and the end of the age. And we'll talk through a couple of them today, but Revelation is the main one. And so I've asked Jairus if he could give us a contextual rundown of the book of Revelation this morning. Are you ready for that? Okay, over to you, Jai. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, my topic is how to read Revelation. And uh, get excited because the Revelation is an exciting and fun book. Uh, and just like the rest of the biblical story, it is for everyone, everywhere, in every season, His Word is eternal. So my goal today is to demystify some of the stigmas we have against Revelation, uh, sorry, the Revelation, uh, and give you some tools to help you read it and hopefully uh, encourage you to dive in it as well. And I, I owe a lot of my study and my research to Tim Mackey and the Bible Project, uh, to Blueprint, uh, to Shane Willard and N.T. Wright, and so much more. But let's just jump right in. Some common uh, thoughts that come into mind when you think of the Revelation may be judgment, Armageddon, uh, the coming of Christ, dragons or beasts, um, maybe even one government, one currency, the mark of the beast. Maybe you flip to the other side and you see hope, you see new beginnings, a new era, a new creation, a new earth. End of days. I was just uh, a cuss word that, that I was alerted to by Chrissy told me, maybe it's the rapture, right? Um, plagues, diseases, persecution. But there's always one term that comes into everyone's mind when we talk about the revelation, and that's apocalypse. The single event involving destruction or damage of a cataclysmic scale. You see, Oxford defines apocalypse as the complete and final destruction of the world as described in the book of Revelation. The end of the world. 2012. Do we remember? Was anyone, does anyone remember that we all thought that 20... Okay, no, that was missed me. That was like a big thing when I was in school. It was like the end of the world is... Anyway. Uh, I remember it was 2000 was going to be the end of the world. You know, the millennial bug and all that stuff? Turning to zero. I'm that old. Okay. So though its modern day interpretation is that of the apocalypse is the end of the world, can I just tell you today that that's not what apocalypse means in the Bible. It actually has a complete and different definition. And the word apocalypse is a Greek word that has been translated to English and has a very clear meaning. And the word means to uncover or reveal making something known. Usually with the implication that it had been hidden or unknown, but was always there. It was always there. So an apocalypse is when God pulls back the curtain to show someone what is truly going on behind the scenes from a divine perspective. This is why you can call Paul's transformation or Paul's conversion an apocalypse. He shares in Galatians chapter 1 uh, that God apocalypsed his son to me. God revealed his son to me. God uh, um, uncovered his son to me. And this revealing uh, showed the true nature of God and then changed how he rolled. 
So we can conclude that our current worldview leaves part of our reality and possibly even our spirituality uh, hidden to us. And it takes some sort of divine phenomenon uh, or experience that cracks and shatters the lens of our worldview, changing the way of how we see. To see things that we've never seen before, but have always been there. And this is the foundation of biblical apocalypses. And we start here to expose an attitude when we approach the scriptures. And that is the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. Dr. John Walton said, we believe the Bible was written for us, that it is for everyone of all times and places because it is God's word. But it isn't written to us. It wasn't written in our language. It wasn't written with our culture in mind or our culture in view. In other words, context matters. And though it is important to understand what scripture means for us in the now, we cannot negate what it meant for them first. So when we read the Bible and particularly scripture that challenges our, challenges our perception, it is one of those very difficult moments when we must leave our own ideas and languages and agenda at the door. So is it okay if I give you some context to the book of the Revelation? So let's talk about when. When is particularly important to the time of Revelation because it makes historical references to real people, to real religions, to real places and real events that the reader is just supposed to know. To the first century Christians in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, they would understand the nuances of this book. But to us, we don't. So here are just some aspects of what was happening around the time of what we believe is the 80-90s. So in Asia, Christians were seen as religious deviants who did not deserve protection under the religious licensing laws that allowed Jews to practice their faith. And at the same time, Rome demanded absolute of loyalty to the empire and to the emperor. In fact, at this point, Caesar worship was being enforced as international law. Caesar worship. So the Roman Empire at this time was, was the one world government who made the currency, the one currency, for everyone to buy and sell their way. And Caesar claimed himself to be of divine status, taking the name of son of God the fullness of God incarnate, and no other can be saved uh, than through his name. And those who refuse to worship this narcissistic uh, emperor or ally uh, to the empire were persecuted, persecuted harshly. I'm getting dry mouth at the moment. I will in a second. I'm going to smash through this. So the letter... <laughs> the letter of the Revelation was written at a particular time of immense economic oppression and persecution of the church and the Christians. So the story goes, uh, John, who we believe is the Apostle John, uh, was arrested and tortured by the Roman government. Domitian, the Caesar at the time, ordered John's execution by dipping him in a vat of boiling oil. The only thing is, John survived. And Domitian dared not do it again because if he survived a second time, then maybe people start to believe that his God is greater than me. His God is greater than our gods, right? So what do you do with someone like that? You banish them. 
And so John was exiled to the island of Patmos, is where he received the revelation, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And so he wrote seven of the same letters to seven different churches in Asia Minor, believing that's all who will end up reading it, with the purpose of living with hope in incredible persecution and oppression. So let's go through some practical points now. I gave you some context, let's go through some practical points. The Revelation is dense scripture. It really does read like the entirety of the biblical story in one. And that's because it is a letter written to seven churches. But it also is an historical book that contains real events and real people like we said before. It is also a prophetic book and more, more commonly, actually not more commonly, um, what makes it harder to read, sorry, uh, is something that we're not exposed to a lot, and that is apocalyptic literature. And this type of literature is written in a poetic, imaginative style, uh, and is dense with symbolism. Dense with symbolism. And unless you have a good grasp of the rest of the biblical story, these symbols will sound ridiculous. Like the dragon, who has so many heads and has many crowns, and the beast that looks like this, and so on and so forth. And sometimes we are told what these symbols mean, like in the book of Daniel, how these beasts represent violent and corrupt nations. But more often, the authors assume that you know how to connect the dots through the biblical story and trace its meaning. So let's go through some practical tips now when re reading the Revelation. First, pray for Revelation and read with humility. It's the idea of faith seeking understanding. It's by our faith in which we, the idea that we don't know all. Yeah. And so we seek understanding. Understand its context. First, what does it mean for them? What does it mean for us as a whole, as a body of Christ? And then what does it mean for me? Have a firm understanding of the rest of the biblical story. Use resources that align with our doctrine or with the doctrine that you're in. Right? And ask yourself, do my beliefs line up with historical perspective? And because history gives credibility. History stands the test of time. Don't take a lot of it literally. A lot of it is symbolism. A lot of it is imagery. It's important that you pause on these moments and meditate on these scripture. What you call meditation scripture. Finally, don't get lost in the details. What's the big picture? So let me give you the big picture now. If you read the revelation in mind with Armageddon or a countdown to Jesus' return, then you've missed the point of the revelation. John's apocalypse is a masterfully crafted and wonderfully designed message that, like all the other books in the Bible, point to our risen Savior, Jesus. It is by his death that opens the pathway into the renewed creation that begun with the resurrection of Jesus. It is a timeless, symbolic, uh, symbolic vision that brings hope and challenge, a message to the first century Christians and to us now, not to be corrupted by the customs of the world and to live our lives as Jesus as Lord, not Caesar. Despite living in oppression and persecution, a life of worship, a call to worship. And so the book of Revelation ends with 
a picture of the garden in Genesis where heaven and earth meet and human images rule creation in the love and the power of God. There we go. Yes, well deserved. Epic, huh? Wow, I love that. Okay, so Jai, you're in a roll here with the book of Revelation. Have that drink. Um, well deserved. So there is lots of symbolism in the book of Revelation. There's the mark of the beast, there's the dragon, there's all kinds of things. Do you want to give us some of the meanings of that symbolism right now? Yeah, uh, without getting too into it. Firstly, Just give us a couple. Give yeah, a couple. I'll give a couple. Uh, and also, again, there are a lot of resources out there, and Blueprint does go very much into this. Um, I saw the notes. I took everything from there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> chapter 4 and 5. I'm going to drop into chapter 4 and 5 of Revelations. John uh, is experiencing uh, the throne of heaven. Uh, there he sees God holding a scroll uh, with seven wax seals. That in itself represents the Old Testament, the prophets, uh, and the message of the coming kingdom. Uh, that um, uh, his kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, but what John hears is that no one is able to open up the scroll. He sees that no one is able to open up the scroll. Uh, but then he hears, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory, he is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. So obviously they're talking about Jesus here. Now what John hears and what he sees are different. He hears the lion of Judah, but when he turns around and sees, he does not see the triumphant lion and the lion of Judah. What he sees is a lamb, a lamb that is slain. This, alive and ready to open the scroll though. And this is a symbol of Jesus as the slain lamb, and is crucially important to understanding the whole book. Jesus' death was not a defeat, but how he conquered evil. So let's go into some of the symbolism now. So the dragon symbolizes the serpent from Genesis, but it can also be symbolized as the source of all evil. And so when we look at the Roman people, yes, it's, it's talking about a lot of the Roman people and all this stuff, but they are not the real enemy. But the dragon is. And you conquer the dragon through the blood of the Lamb. The woman and her seed represents the Messiah and his people. The beasts are a reference to Daniel's visions and represent corrupt nations, but more specifically military power and uh, economic propaganda that exalts this power as divine. Uh, the mark of the beast is part of that, which I believe we'll go into a little bit later. The stunning woman who is dressed like a queen but is drunk on the blood of martyrs and innocent people riding the dragon is called Babylon, uh, the prostitute, and is a symbol of uh, rebellious nations. Uh, there are a lot of symbolic meanings to numbers here. Seven, meaning the completeness or, or perfection. You even get uh, a thousand years, and that can be seen as literal. Uh, but a lot of people believe that it's a, a symbolic number, and that uh, a thousand years means the entirety of everything. Uh, and the bride of the Lamb is a stunning woman that symbolizes the new creation to stay forever, to join God and His covenant people. Again, there is so much we can get into, but... That's just some of the symbolism there. It's a brief overview. Um, and, you know, I think it's important that you go and research this out for yourself because as you can hear, it's in-depth, yes. uh, brimming with revelation and symbolism. So it's good to do your own reading. Uh, the Mark of the Beast has come up a little bit lately because 
you know, something that I heard a little bit of was people thought that the vaccination was the mark of the beast, um, things like that. Do you want to sure. comment on that at all? Or, or shall we just skip right over it and move along? <laughs> <laughs> yep, let's move along. Oh, hang on. I can, I've got a little bit I can share. Okay. I'll talk about the mark of the beast. Firstly, the mark of the beast was a real thing and it happened in the time of John. It happened then. It was a real thing that John was going through. Uh, it was about 78 to 92 AD. Uh, it wasn't something about the future. Now, might it happen again? Maybe, right? But it was current in his day and age. Now, to give you a little bit of background around this, Domitian the Caesar at the time, again, was a narcissist, and he made every single attempt to let the people know, specifically the Jews, that he was the God. And because of his relentless scrutiny, the Jews nicknamed him the Beast. Now, there's this place in Ephesus called the Agora. It's where we get the word agoraphobia. It was the place, the marketplace, where everything was accessible. It was a port at the time. Everyone would come there. Now, Domitian made it a law that if you wanted to uh, sell or buy in this place, you needed to give an offering uh, to Domitian because of his divinity and rulership and the privilege of being under his divinity and rulership. The problem is, how do you police this? So he would put two witnesses who would watch you give into the offering and you would receive this mark on the forehand or the forehead. And this was your license to buy and sell. So to buy and sell on the Angora, you first need to take the mark of the beast. The writing on the forehead or the forehand is a reference to the Shema. Now, the Shema is an ancient Jewish prayer of allegiance to God found in the book of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? Beautiful prayer. This prayer was also written on the forehead or the forehand as a devotion of our thoughts and our actions. So now the rebellious nations demand their allegiance and create in some way an anti-Shema. So let's talk about the number 666 now. It has fascinated readers for thousands of years, though uh, to John it was no mystery. John spoke Hebrew and Greek. Hebrew letters are also numbers. If you spell the word Nero Caesar and the word beast in Hebrew, each one amounts to 666. So John isn't saying that Nero is the only fulfillment of this vision. Nations become beasts when they exalt their own power and economic security uh, as false gods and demand total allegiance. So the beast was Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, and now Rome in John's day and age. Okay, uh, I reckon that might be good because, um, yes. yeah, because we could talk about Revelation for hours and hours and hours because there's so much. Can we give Jairus? You need another drink? Yes, that was brilliant. So we're going to press pause on Revelation for a minute, and I'm going to throw to Ben, and I'm going to ask you, Ben, are we in the end times? Is Jesus returning soon? We all want to know. Can you tell us? Cool. I'm going to give it to you, black and white. <laughs> I'll give you the answer. No. <laughs> um, yes, he is coming. And are we in the end times? It's, it's such a great question. And just by, just by a quick survey, put your hand up if you have asked that question. Have you ever asked maybe yourself or somebody else, 
Are we in the end times? Have you heard the days, the last day, or the term, sorry, the last days? We're living in the last days, or we're living in the last minutes. And it's, it's such a common thing and such a common thought. So don't, uh, you know, rule yourself out if you do ponder these things. It's good to ponder on. And um, I want to jump to another story in the Bible because you're not alone if you have asked this question. Even the disciples themselves, themselves asked Jesus the exact same question. And you'll find that in Matthew chapter 24. They're at the Mount of Olives, and uh, they ask Jesus, and they ask him, um, they say this, they say to Jesus, tell us when will these things be, and what will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And I love how Jesus replies to it. And you know what he does? He actually flips it. Because they ask, when will these things be? What will these things be? And then what are the signs? So Jesus starts with the end. What are the signs? Okay, I'll give you some signs. And this might be why you ask the question right now. Are we in the end times right here, right now? Because there's five different signs that Jesus goes on to talk about. Matthew 24, 4 to 5, you'll see, and he mentions about the appearance of false Christ or false prophets or false teachers. And we see that running rampant throughout our society today. I mean, we even come to a position now where we aren't even sure what is Christian, what isn't. What is biblical, what isn't. And we're questioning everything. And there's a lot of false teachers. You can find a great resource called YouTube, and you'll find many, many false teachers. Or you'll find many people just pulling down other teachers and calling them false teachers. But it's just we're in a blessed age where we have so much information, but it gets to the point where we're over-informed and we're under-revealed. Um, so, yes, it's a dangerous time. And so it's clear. You're like, yep, okay. Jesus said one of the signs is false prophets. Okay, we have heaps of those. Uh, another sign is wars and disasters. You'll see that happening more and more. And, yeah, even in New Zealand right now, there's, there's some disasters that are just never happened before. The flooding um, and everything that's going on around the world, the wars that are happening, and we're like, yep, tick, tick, okay, we must be in the end times because wars and disasters are happening. He goes on and talks about the spreading of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Uh, actually, I might have skipped one. He talks about being arrested and persecuted and hated because we are followers of Christ. Um, more and more Christians or people who believe in, in Christ and the Lord are becoming the minority and we're becoming more and more restrained and so you know we're like oh man we must be in the end times because this is happening more and more spread of the gospel yeah there are so many resources out there we're able to stream online right now we're able to get the gospel to the ends of the earth and reach as far and wide as we can um, so the gospel is traveling um, and God is on the move and the restoration of Israel is mentioned as one of the signs as well. I mean, when Donald Trump was president, he declared that Jerusalem was the capital of Israel. And that's one of the signs that, you know, the end times is near. And so, in short, are we in the end times? Quite possibly. But hey, what if I said that since you were born, we were living in the end times? Since you came to this earth, we were in that period of end times. And so... Jesus doesn't just leave the disciples there. He goes on to tell stories and address what will these things be. And he's talking more about like what are we as, as believers, as followers of Christ, to do with this information? I mean, I even wrestle with this, this question. Why even bother with signs? You know, why give us these, these signs about the end times? But um, Jesus is very clever and he tells three stories. 
just quickly, he talks about, you know, the ten virgins straight after this. He talks about um, how we are to be and make sure that we are prepared uh, because, sorry, I skipped over. Just before that, he says that very clearly, nobody knows the time when Jesus will return. And that's a very, very important take-home. Okay, these might be the signs and things that are happening, but nobody knows the time when Christ will return. It even goes further to say because Christ is going to come back with a legion of angels to return as a conquering king. But even the angels who are coming with him, they don't know. They don't know when they're coming. Actually, even more than that, Christ himself doesn't know when he's coming. Only the Father knows. Only the Father knows. So if anybody tells you that they know when it's happening, they're lying. Okay, they do not know because why would you know and not Christ know? So it's very, I know I can't stress this point enough that we do not know when the time is happening. Even though there are signs and signs are happening all around us, that just encourages us to do more and to be prepared. Because he goes on and talks about the ten virgins. Five of them were wise, five were foolish, five had extra oil to make sure that their lamps were still lit when Christ did eventually return. And five ran out of oil when that time came. They went off to get more oil and Christ came during that time, came back, everyone gone. And so we need to be like the five wise virgins. Make sure that we have a stockpile of oil, that we are constantly in the presence of God, that we are constantly filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are ready, that when Christ comes, we are there, we are ready, we are on our front foot. We're not sitting back, we're not waiting, we're not like, oh, okay, these are the signs, it's coming back, so I'm going to sit on my couch and just wait for him to get here. No, we need to be activated. Make sure that we are ready, that our lights are lit, because you are called to be a light in the dark world. So do be that light and be that, um, that person. He goes on to tell another story about the, uh, the servants. A master needs to go away on a trip, so he gives some of his servants. He gives one of them five talents, another one two talents, another one he gives one. If you heard the story, you know how it goes. The one with five invests and doubles it. The one with two invests and doubles it. The one with one buries it and does nothing with it. Just waits for the master to return. And it's that one that gets rebuked. The, the talents and the gifts that were given to him was taken off and given to the others. And so Jesus is saying that we need to be activated followers of Christ. That what he has given you, what he has blessed you with, needs to be activated into the community. Because there is work to be done. While there are signs and the, we are in the end of the age, yes, he still needs you. He still wants you. We are still called to make a difference here and now. And then finally, he talks about the final judgment, what it's going to look like, separating the sheep from the goats, and how he's going to identify the sheep as the ones that looked after the poor. He said, man, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. That's how I knew you were one of my, one of my followers. And so we are called to look after the least of us. Yeah. Jesus came for the sick, not the healed. And we'll talk more about that very soon, but we are called to be active followers of Christ, not here waiting for the end to arrive and get fixated on that. And it's so easy with such a confusing book that Jairus articulated. Where I could sit here all day listening to you pick that apart because I learned a lot this morning. Um, and we can just get in this zone of anxiety and concern about, oh, what am I doing? Do I need to be here? Is he coming? Or, or, should I even bother doing this and that? Yes, you should. I heard this great uh, saying is to, I don't want to get it wrong, um, is to, of course, it's going gonna, it's gonna to leave me. This is when I need to share it. Um, 
live. No, okay, if I remember it, I'm going to bring it up to all you. Right, so all right, all right, all right, okay, okay. Throw it back. So I love that because what Ben's saying is that the disciples were asking, is it the end times? When are you coming back? And, and Jesus sort of flips it on its head and says, it's not about when I'm coming back, it's about what you should be doing while you wait. And so he take, gives those three parables, parables, parables and explains, you know what, I am coming back, but you don't really need to worry about that. What you need to worry about is what you should be doing right now. And that's the ten virgins and the parable of the talents and the, the sheep and the goats. So we're nearly out of time, but, you know, Ben was sharing with us during the week about um, his experiences growing up in the church that he grew up in, um, the Potter's House. And he was saying that it was very fear-based teaching about the end times. Do you want to just, like, 30 seconds? Yeah, can I traumatise you for a minute? Um, <laughs> No, but it, it, was, it was shared a lot about tribulation and the end times and like the rapture as well was shared. I remember even sitting in a service and watching the video on screen and there was like people just disappearing and then if you were left behind, I think it was even called the left behind or something like that. Um, I even remember uh, like a, pitch, a scene of the gallows, is it gallows? And people getting heads chopped off and stuff like that. It was just massive times of tribulation and everyone was like scared to salvation. I remember like every, every time going up and, and being like, oh Jesus, like forgive me for my sins. I just want to, you know, make sure that I am saved so that I don't become one of these left behind. Um, and being scared of being left behind was a real thing that was kind of taught and preached from. So yeah, it was a scary book to yeah, so, and I wonder, you know, maybe that might be your story in the room today. Like maybe you've got some fear and anxiety about what might happen and what might come in the future. I mean, rapture, the rapture is actually a very new doctrine. Perhaps only the last 200 years that's been explored. And prior to that, none of our historical brothers and sisters who lived in Christendom before us believed in that. So it's a, it's a new thing, which means that it doesn't have quite the credibility that other doctrines have. It's more of a Hollywood style of Armageddon, probably. But can I just finish? I'm, I'm wrapping this up now. Um, I know this is a lot to take in. It's quite heavy. It's convoluted. Um, but I want to wrap up with a thought. Um, and I want to give you my personal, this is Christy Blakey's personal doctrine on the end times. My personal thoughts are I like to align with what we call a partial preterist view. That just means that some of the book of Revelation has already happened and some is yet to happen. And I'm giving you my personal preference. You don't have to agree with me, it's fine. We're not going to divide the church over this. It's not one of our absolutes, okay? But the reason that I'm giving it to you today is I want to give your mind the possibility of another option apart from this fearful, disappearing, judgment, Armageddon, fire story that maybe you've heard and you're afraid of. The partial preterist view is actually what we call a victorious ending or a victorious eschatology where the church arises in all of her glory and leads people into the end days. I like that view. So can I just tell you very quickly about it? 
So Ben's already talked about Matthew 24 and 25. We call it the Olivet Discourse, which is just because it happened on the Mount of Olives, right? So uh, on, on, the, on the Mount of Olives in Matthew 24, Ben just talked about it. Jesus says to his disciples, they're walking past the temple. And the temple was the very crux of their faith. It was everything to them. It was where they worshipped. It was where they sacrificed. It was where they prayed. It was where the very presence of God was kept. Up until they lost the Ark of the Covenant, that is. But it was symbolic of God's presence. It was the center of their faith. So it's crazy when Jesus walks the disciples past and says to them in chapter 24, verse 1, He says to him, do you see all these things? They're looking at the temple. He says, truly I tell you that not one stone here will be left on another. Everything will be thrown away. Now that's chaos causing, anxiety invoking for the disciples. Because they're like, what are you talking about? This has existed for 2,000 years. You can't just say the temple's going to be decimated. This is everything to us. The centre of our faith. Why would you get rid of the temple? So this is where this conversation is coming from. And Jesus says, oh, the disciples then look at that and they say, Jesus, kind of, what are you talking about? When will this happen? They ask him three questions. When will this happen? When will the temple not exist anymore? What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? And Jesus answers all three of those questions separately. And you can read this later. It's coming up on the screen, guys. Can you pop it up on the screen? There's question one, question two, and question three. Question one, when will these things happen? I.e., when will the temple be destroyed? And Jesus answers it in Matthew 24, verses 4 to 29. He gives the answer. You can go and read it later. Basically, he says it'll be destroyed within one generation. A generation is 40 years according to the Bible. And Jesus says to his disciples, you will see it with your own eyes and you will hear it with your own ears within your generation. So he's saying these signs, this, the temple being destroyed will be accompanied by the signs. And Ben read out the signs. like there were, The signs were like famines, false prophets, He says earthquakes in various places. All of those things happened after Jesus was resurrected and before the temple was destroyed. Those signs happened in their generation. Question two, he says, what will be the sign of your coming? Well, he answers that in Matthew 24 verses 30 to 32. He says, you'll see the sign of the Son of Man in the sky. He's going to gather the elect from the four winds. The elect is the people who have got salvation in Christ Jesus. That's what the elect is. And he's going to gather them together. Question three, what about the end of the age? When is the end of the world happening, Jesus? And he answers in Matthew 24, verses 36 to 42. Take a photo of that so you can go and research it later. And Jesus says the return of that day and hour, as Ben says, nobody knows, not the angels, not Jesus, only the Father knows. And Jesus goes on to say, 
My return will be at a time where no one knows, no one's expecting him. Like the parable of the ten virgins, they weren't expecting him. They were going on, getting married, living a normal life, working their daily jobs. And Jesus comes like a thief in the night. No one's ready for him. No one's expecting him. What are the signs of Jesus' return? There aren't any signs. That's what that text is saying. So then we look to the book of Revelation, which shows us what the picture of the new age will look like. And Revelation says, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And there's a picture of the holy city coming out of heaven and resting on the earth where Jesus now is the one who is in charge. He is the king on the throne existing on the earth. He is now leading full authority. So this is my important part that I want you to take away from today. Between the temple being destroyed, which happened in AD 70, and Jesus' return, the end of the age, there's this great age, there's this great period which we call the church age where the gospel is meant to be advanced. Okay, between the temple being destroyed and Jesus' return, we are in the church age, the advancement of the gospel, the age we're in right now. And the scripture which defines the age that we're in right now is, of course, Matthew 28, Jesus' final words to us before he ascended into heaven. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, people, all of you, go and make disciples. Go and baptize them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you. When? Even to the very end of the age, Jesus is saying, Go and advance the gospel, go and make disciples, and I'm with you to the end. I'm with you on the earth till I come again. I'm with you to the end of the age. This is the scripture which defines the time and the season of which we live in right now. Are we in the end times? Sure, whatever. Will Jesus return? Yes, he will. What's our purpose right now? Advance, advance, advance. Make disciples, make disciples. So this eschatology, my personal belief, is a victorious one where the kingdom grows and Jesus returns and rules with dominion. And that feels like something we can look forward to. You know, not our heads being chopped off or our children being murdered in front of us, but a victorious ending where the church advances when disciples come to know him and then he returns and leads us in glory and dominion. Is there an amen in the room? Amen. Come on. And the end times is something that we should look forward to. We've been confused about it. I've been told in the Bible I should look forward to this, but I'm so damn scared about what might happen. I just don't know how to feel. No, we should look forward to the end times. Jesus is our hope and he is our, he is our glory. And I'll finish on this scripture, Titus 2, 11 to 14. It says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all training us to renounce impiety and worldly passions and in the present age, to that's now, to live lives that are self-controlled, upright 
and godly while we wait for the blessed hope. Say blessed hope. Blessed hope. And the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. He's coming in glory and we look forward to that blessed hope. Amen. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. That scripture is amazing and powerful. Gives us great context about the day and the time in which we live. Well, I think that's definitely all we've got time for. We've gone over and above. I really pray that that has given you some clarity, answered some of your questions, perhaps dispelled some myths that you've held around the end times. I encourage you, go and learn. Go and read. Go and find some books, I think.